Summer's coming to a close, and I must say it's been a whirlwind of a summer. We were able to get away a, a couple of times and do some, do some nice things, and that was fun. But now Laura's getting ready to go back to school, and, and she's scheduling times to meet with teachers to do her planning and, and different things like that. But this past week, one thing we got to enjoy was Colson's nine-month birthday. Now, uh, we didn't uh, have a birthday party, per se, but we did post something on Facebook, so that's something. But... Um, one of the questions we get a lot from people is, what's Colson going to call his grandparents? My parents and my in-laws, what will he call them? And uh, they have some names that they've picked out that for right now we're calling them. But ultimately, both sides say whatever Colson decides, that's what'll stick. And then the rest of the family has to deal with it uh, because he's the first child on both sides. But they're not really worried about the name because the name isn't that important to them. The thing that's important to them is their relationship with Colson. They don't care what he calls them. They just want to have a, a good time with him, get to know, get to know him, get the, him to know that they love him and establish a great relationship together. And, and that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be for any relationship. It doesn't matter what the name is. It's the relationship that matters. But when it comes to our Christian walk, too often we have it backwards. Too often we're happy with the name. We like being called Christian, uh, but we don't really have any true joy from the relationship. We don't have any, any real uh, thing to show from a relationship with Christ. We just have the name and we move on from there. You know, I was thinking about this and I thought, when I moved in the summer between 6th and 7th grade, I left my best friend at three years. He was the best friend I'd ever had up to that point. 4th, 5th, and 6th grade, we just got along great. He taught me how to play chess. We did all sorts of stuff together. Um, and then I moved away, and we got together a couple of times, but I haven't seen him since. We're friends on Facebook, so I know what he's up to, but I couldn't tell you what his personality, personality is like after all these years or, or what his beliefs are or what he's even, you know, doing in his free time uh, because we just don't have that relationship lasting. And that, I think, happens a lot with our faith, too. We, we get the name, and we have that going, and then we might have a good relationship for a while, but then it's like we move away. And so we have the memory, we cling to that, we still know it, but there's nothing more than that. So our question today is, how does joy in Christ, how does this relationship with Christ, the joy we have in him, supersede the drudgery of life? How does it overcome the blahs of life, the disappointment, the circumstances? How does it overcome life itself when life just seems to be rough? And Paul's writing to the Philippians, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 today. I'm only going to look at Philippians 1. I really want to just stay honed into that. But we're going to see that Paul has a lot to say about finding joy in Christ. And a lot of people will say that joy is the theme of Philippians, and it is. But we need to go a little bit deeper than that and say that joy found in Christ is the theme of Philippians. He doesn't just want us to be mindlessly joyful. He wants us to be joyful because of what Christ has done. And so as we go through this, we'll see that a relationship with Christ brings a joy that supersedes all that drudgery stuff. It supersedes our chains and can really turn them into charms in life if we have the right Outlook. Now, before I get into this, I want to remind you just briefly, because we'll talk about it more at 1045, but briefly, Philippians was started in Acts chapter 16. You can read the story of how Paul was there, and he met Lydia, uh, a wealthy lady, and, and he 
presented her with the gospel, and then there was a girl who was possessed by demons. He presented her with the gospel. He was thrown in jail because of it, and then he actually brought the, the soldier guarding him in jail and the soldier's family to Christ as well, and so that's where the church started. So it started from a very diverse background, which is really, really good. Because diversity in the church means that we have a unity that goes beyond what we look like, beyond what we think, beyond what we, what we would prefer to do in our free time. We have a unity that's bound by Christ. So we have this rich lady, a soldier, his family, and a little girl that was demon-possessed. They're starting this church. And from the get-go, Philippians is a great place to be. And so Paul's writing to them out of love, out of affection for them. He is so thrilled with the Philippian church. And so as I'm thinking about this, to understand the attitude of the Philippians in receiving this letter, it's like you go to the mail one day and you're like, Bill, 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 letter from Paul, Bill, Bill. It's not like that with them. It's Bill, 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 letter from Paul. Guys, we've got a letter from Paul. Paul's writing to us. Remember Paul? He started the church. He's the one that told us about Jesus. I'm excited to have this letter from Paul. That's what Philippians is like. And so as we go through Philippians, keep that in mind. Paul is writing to people he loves, people he cherishes, and he's not here telling them you're doing this, this, and this wrong. He's saying, do this to get even more out of it. So that's the attitude we have in Philippians. So joy in Christ. Paul wants them to know a joy in Christ first that supersedes disappointment. Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. First thing we're going to see is that joy in Christ supersedes disappointment. Paul knew disappointment. I know you know disappointment. I've known disappointment. I've known it from... um, you know, from my past, from my family, from my friends, from my personal decisions, uh, from the government, even from the church. I've known disappointment, and I know you have too. I don't know the exact way, but I'm pretty sure we're all on the same page here. We know what disappointment feels like. And Paul certainly knew what disappointment felt like. If you caught it there, you caught that he was in prison. He was actually in house arrest. But house arrest back then wasn't an ankle bracelet. You were actually chained to a Roman soldier. So day and night, he was chained to this Roman soldier, and uh, he wasn't able to be out doing what he preferred to do. Uh, They were wanting to keep his message quiet, um, so he was disappointed. He was disappointed just like you have been. And, And so we say, well, what do we do? We say we do what Paul did. We supersede disappointment by getting our joy from Christ. Great. How? I'm glad you asked. 
he had three key things that he did, even in these, ju- in these just uh, first 11 verses that we're going to look at. First, I want to define joy, though, because we're going to talk about joy now and for the next three weeks. Joy, in this case, isn't just a momentary happiness, and it's not even just a lasting happiness. It's a supernatural contentment in the midst of life. Joy is a supernatural contentment in the midst of life. And the way Paul had this was these, these three things. First, he thanked God for those who upheld the gospel. We see that in verses three through five. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was excited that people were doing something for the gospel. And if he's doing that, he must have placed Christ pretty high. If the sharing of the gospel was, a, was what brought him joy, it must have put it, been a pretty high priority, and he thanked God for them. You see, when you pray about something repeatedly, you don't just do it you know, once and done, but you pray about it consistently, you start to change your mindset about things. And so Paul's been praying, thanking God for those who are upholding the gospel. He says, with joy in my every prayer for you, this idea of ongoing. And so his mind is in such a place where he is excited about the gospel being spread so that he's always worried about and concerned with the the message of Christ going forward. And, And this brings him joy knowing the Philippians are doing just that. And so my question for you is, does it excite you that there are places where the gospel is spreading like wildfire? Does it excite you that there are places where missionaries are are bringing people to Christ in droves? Does it excite you when churches are making a big impact in their community? If it does, we need to thank God for them. We need to be praying for them, asking him to strengthen these people, to to lift them up and, and encourage them, but above all, to thank God for them. Second, this is a big one. He knew imperfections are normal, but not permanent. Paul knew imperfections are normal, but not permanent. Look at verse six. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He began a good work in you, and he's going to perfect it. We call this the sanctification process. We talked about that um, during our This I Believe series. We talked about it uh, more in some other sermons the, word, sermons, the word keeps coming up, sanctification. It's our progress toward holiness. So it's not a, a tiered system. I think sometimes we think I have to do this uh, to earn God's love on this level and this to earn God's love on this level and, and this to earn God's love on this level. And that's not the way it is. It's, it's us progressively becoming holier as God works in us, but he loves us just as much here as he did here. It's just we get to love him in new and better ways as we're, as we're more and more sanctified as he brings us through this. So Paul's looking forward to the fact that these people are going to become more and more Christ-like. And for us, that means we need to know that imperfections are normal but not permanent. Because if you're not perfect yet, that means you're imperfect. In fact, just for fun, because this will probably be a great, enjoyable thing to do, turn to somebody and say, you're not perfect. Now turn back to that person and say, neither are you. (laughs) We're not perfect. And if you get frustrated with people easily, then maybe this is a point for you. Maybe you don't call it frustration. Maybe you just call it being grumpy when people don't do what you want them 
to do. Remember that that person you get frustrated with, if they're a Christian, is in the process of being perfected. They're not perfect yet, but neither are you, so be gracious. Be gracious. You're going to find a lot more joy in Christ if we're gracious, understanding that people aren't perfect, that neither am I, neither are you, but we're all in the process of being sanctified. The third thing he did was he prayed for that perfection to happen. He didn't just say, God, I know you'll do it. I'm going to pray and and ask you to make it happen. That's in verses 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So we said this path to perfection is called sanctification. If you're on that path, and if you've become a Christian, you are on that path. Uh, I don't, don't know how quickly you're going down the path. I know sometimes I go quicker than others. Uh, sometimes it feels like I'm going backwards even. But if you've become a Christian, you are on that path toward perfection. And so Paul spells out uh, some criteria for this. In verse 9, he says that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. This is important because so often we get this idea of love, and it's all based on sentimentality. It's all based on an awe. That's precious. Oh, that is sweet. That is so nice. And that's okay in some situations, but in the love of Christ, we want it based on knowledge, based on fact. And so he's saying, I want your love to be based on a knowledge of me. I want you to be able to discern what is truly of me and what isn't. Because love, in some instances, is saying no. We know the example of keeping a child from touching a hot stove. That is love. No can be loving. And so we need knowledge and discernment to know what this love of Christ is. We love what Christ loves. Loves and we know and discern it better and better because we're growing. Then verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. This is the idea of actual testing for purity in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. The idea of a a moral purity, making sure we're doing things that are God-honoring, that aren't going to get in the way of us going down this path toward perfection, this path of sanctification. We're helping each other to walk down that path and not stumble. We're testing things, approving things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And third, we're exhibiting fruit. This is the fruit you know about from Galatians. He doesn't say it the same way. He says, uh, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But what he's talking about is the fruit of the Spirit that we see in, in Galatians. And we know that that is, uh, what is that? I know what that is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That's it. I thought I had my notes and I'm like, I know it's in there. Okay. The fruit of the Spirit, you know, So often we think, man, I really need to develop patience. Man, I really need to develop, you know, I need to be kinder to somebody. But if we think about it from a theological perspective, the fruit of the Spirit really is a barometer for where we are spiritually. And so if we find ourselves saying those things, we need to do more than just develop that particular trait, that particular fruit. We need to dive into the Word more. We need to check where our relationship with Christ is. If we're not patient, if we're not kind if we don't have self-control, then something else is off that's causing that to happen. And so we need to check ourselves 
on that. So having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. We exhibit the fruit. We exhibit the fruit. I want you to think about that. Think about those things, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What are the things that you really struggle with? Now think about exhibiting those things even in the midst of disappointment. It'll keep you from becoming bitter. It'll keep you from becoming angry because your joy is coming from Christ, not from your disappointment, not from your situation. In fact, your situation is the next part of this chapter. We have joy in Christ that supersedes our circumstances. Joy in Christ that supersedes our circumstances, beginning in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Joy in Christ supersedes our circumstances. I already told you that Paul was imprisoned, and he mentions that again in this section. And I want to read to you a little summary of what that might have been like. It's from Paul, a man of grace and grit by Chuck Swindoll. If you like to read, I highly recommend reading that over the course of this month, finding it on Amazon in a bookstore. You can probably find it used. It's been out for many years. But Paul, a man of grace and grit by Chuck Swindoll will really give you a great perspective, not just on Philippians, but on the entire life of Paul. He writes this about his situation, about his circumstances. Paul is under house arrest in rented quarters. He refuses to focus on that. He is far from home and his future is uncertain. He doesn't let that concern him. He is bound to a Roman guard every day. No problem. Because he has made Christ the object of his life, contentment has replaced frustration. He's taught himself to live above his circumstance. Joy in Christ supersedes circumstance. See, well, how did he do that? How did Paul live above his circumstance. Paul lived above his circumstance because Christ was real to him. Christ was real to him. Too many of us hear about Christ, but we never live as though he's real. We might even say things like, well, I I know God has a plan or whatever, but they're just empty lines. We don't truly believe it. Paul lived as though Christ was real to him. I think of a a young child who has full confidence that the tooth fairy exists. When he loses a tooth, he's going to put it under the pillow and talk about the tooth fairy and can't wait until the tooth fairy comes. He has full confidence that the tooth fairy 
exists. He talks about when, not if, he will receive that money under his pillow. There is belief. There's belief that it's real. But how many of us are like children who have outgrown the tooth fairy? We get bogged down with the realities of life. We get bogged down with, with all the, our circumstances, all the things that, that come in and force us to say, really, is it really true? Can I really believe that? Paul believes it. Paul believes it, and he believes that Christ can supersede his circumstances. In fact, he tells them he has superseded his circumstances. You see, rather than looking out the window and saying, man, there's all these people I could be telling about Christ. I could tell all these people. I could just go out there and preach. But instead of doing that, he turns, looks at that chain on his arm, and realizes he is a captive audience. And so he tells the guard about Christ. And it says not only that, but it went through the entire Praetorian Guard. Now, this gets even neater when we understand what the Praetorian Guard is. They're the elite soldiers. They're highly paid. They stay close to headquarters because Paul was close to headquarters because he had to go before the leader. And so Paul isn't just telling you know, any soldier, he's telling these highly paid soldiers, these really important soldiers, these soldiers who are going to rub elbows with other people. And sure enough, the gospel was shared with the whole Praetorian guard. We said that Acts 16 tells us of a soldier, his family, Lydia, and another girl. And now he's gone from starting the church without one soldier, and even though he's in house arrest, he's sharing Christ with the entire army. Joy in Christ can overcome our circumstances. And, and not just that, this joy this, that he's having, this uh, love for telling people about Christ, even though he's imprisoned, I mean, he's happy that, that Christ is being proclaimed, but he's still imprisoned. Verse 14 says that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So they see Paul doing this. They're like, well, he's already in prison and he's still doing it. I could probably try it too. And so other people have more courage to tell people about Christ and the gospel keeps going. And I would just pause and say, we need to follow Paul's lead. Just look at who was already around us. We don't have anybody literally chained to us, but there are people who are around us a lot who need to hear about Christ. There are people around us a lot who need us to be willing to tell the story of our Savior. We need to have more courage. And if we have more courage, other people will see us, just like in verse 14. And they'll have courage to talk too. See, Paul believed that Christ proclaimed was the main thing. He believed that Christ being proclaimed was the main thing. So that in whatever circumstance, as long as Christ was proclaimed, that was the main thing. Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So there were other people who came to Christ who were telling people about the gospel. They were proclaiming Christ, but there are two different groups. Some people were doing it out of a sincerity of heart, and they were genuine about it. 
Other people were telling people about Christ, but they were hoping to get some sort of notoriety out of it, some sort of fame out of it. And while Paul probably didn't prefer that method, he says, whether in pretense or not, I rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. I rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. Paul was talking about the motives of those who presented the gospel, and he said, as long as Christ is proclaimed, that's the first part. That's the most important thing. And this tells me that your job is just to expose people, not to give a 15-point essay. James McDonald identifies how worried we get with things like a, a person's predisposition to the gospel or how millennials need a different approach to the gospel or, or any other reason to, that we tell ourselves to get out of presenting the gospel to people. But what we forget is the Bible tells us that the gospel, when we share it, is a supernatural thing. Yes, we can reason our way out of it, but God who exceeds all reason can get to the heart of the matter. He just needs you to expose people to it. And I stand before you today embarrassed by the number of times I've fallen into that very trap where I think, you know what, they're, they're, they're not ready for this. They're not going to like it. It'll affect our relationship somehow. If we believe that this gospel that we think is saving us is true, then we should certainly believe that it's true enough to save somebody else. You don't have to be a professional evangelist to do it. You just have to be willing to share the gospel and to, and to, and to actually say it. Another trap we fall into is, oh, well, I share the gospel by just being a good person. Lots of people are good people who aren't going to heaven. And so if all you get is somebody to act like a better person, you haven't done the job. They need to know Christ. We need to preach Christ. That's Paul's example. So joy in Christ supersedes disappointment. Joy in Christ supersedes our circumstances. And then Paul got to something that really makes you think. Joy in Christ can supersede life itself. Joy in Christ can supersede life itself. Beginning in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ... For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent... I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me." If you do a man-on-the-street interview and ask, what really makes you feel alive? What, what really gets you going? What really thrills you? You'll hear things like, like money, you know, different, different types of, of, 
of luxuries. Uh, um, it could be sex, it could be cars, it could be sports, it could be the outdoors, it could be family, it could be any number of things. But if you asked Paul, what really thrills you? What really drives you? What really makes life worth living? It was absolutely Christ. Christ and seeing Christ exalted. We don't live in a culture where that is the norm, to see Christ exalted. Uh, This week, a movie came out. I don't even know the name of it, honestly. Uh, Laura attended it with some friends, and it was from a national speaker, a lady who has a national platform. She she is a Christian, but during this presentation, uh, she repeatedly told uh, the audience that they were enough, that you set your goals, you can meet your goals. You are enough, you, you will succeed, you are enough. That was the overarching principle. And when Laura got home, she really had a big problem with that. And we talked about it for a while because she stopped short. She stopped short. See, seeking just to reach your goal or, or seeking um, the next big opportunity or the next car or, or a trophy hunt or accomplishment or whatever it is, if it's something you can do, it always falls short. It always falls short. Because if it's something you can achieve, it's not going to produce any joy in Christ. If it's something you can achieve on your own, it's not going to produce any joy in Christ. We're going to see this again when we talk about the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because too often we distort that by saying, but I can do some things on my own. I'm going to go in depth in that in a couple of weeks, but we stop short when we think it's all about what we can accomplish. You say, well, how do I know this? That wasn't really in the text. You're right, but Paul wrote other letters, and and two of them, Colossians 3, verse 2, told us to set our mind on things above. Set our mind on on, on things above, and then Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God can do far above anything we can ask or imagine. He tells us, set your sights high, because all we're going to do is either be disappointed we didn't meet these goals, or we'll meet them and then wonder what's next. Joy in Christ never has a I wonder what's next moment because joy in Christ supersedes life. Our aim is to be on the eternal. And then verse 21, he said he preferred to die to be with Christ. Yet he recognized his need to to stay here and, and help the Philippians and the other Christians. But verse 21, let that sink in. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It almost sounds like a riddle, but it's actually very deep. Very deep. To live is Christ, to die is gain. How often do we think of death as gaining anything? The truth is, a Christian does not die. A Christian lives on earth, and then he lives in heaven. but he's talking about the earthly death that he might encounter as a result of his imprisonment. To live is to live for Christ. To die is to be with Christ, and that's even better is what he's saying. Warren Wiersbe, 
offers a really good analogy for this. He says, Christ doesn't need us because he is much bigger than any of us. But just like the stars are much bigger than a telescope, the telescope's job is to magnify the stars so that other people can understand them better. In the same way, our job is to magnify Christ so that other people can understand him and know him better. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. Is your life Christ? See, because joy in Christ supersedes life, we can live according to that higher call. In verse 27, Paul said, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We live according to a higher call. And the way we do that is found here in verse 27. We value the family of God. We value the family of God. When I get up, uh, whether it's in this service or the other worship celebration, and I often will say something to the effect of it's good for us to be together. I truly mean it. I've told you before, I love the church. I think the church can be a great, great tool if it's as God designed it. But we have to value the family of God for that to happen. Being here has to be a priority. Being here and being active has to be an even higher priority. We value the family of God. This um, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel um, where it says striving together for the faith of the gospel gives the idea of a sports team. The idea of a sports team where they're, they're, they're working on something together. They all have different roles, different positions, different responsibilities, but they're all working together with one mind to accomplish something. So the family of God works together with our different positions, skills, jobs, with one mind striving together. But even in doing that, we see the other parts of the sermon creep in because we can expect conflict and disappointment. We can expect conflict and disappointment. We see that in verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So we expect conflict and disappointment, but we're not alarmed by them. We're driven by Christ. And we expect dismal circumstances, but we endure them for Christ's sake. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Nobody likes to suffer. He's not saying you have to enjoy your suffering. He's saying you find joy in the midst of your suffering because you're suffering for Christ. You say, well, what does that mean, suffering for Christ? Like, does that mean like I have to be put on house arrest too and then I'm suffering for Christ because I was telling people about God and they put me in jail? No, what it means is whatever you're suffering in, if you can exalt Christ in that situation, then you're suffering for Christ. Because people are going to see you in your situation. They're going to have pity on you. They're going to wonder what you're going through. Hopefully, they'll offer to be of assistance to you. Hopefully, they'll reach out. But they're going to know that you're going through a tough time. And if they see you saying, despite this tough time, I still love God and I'm going to exalt him, 
then you are experiencing a joy in Christ that supersedes life itself. Because life has suffering. Life has bad circumstances. Life has disappointment. But when you do it for Christ's sake, you get to share in this, what we saw in Paul and now here to be in Paul, we share in that. We share in a life that is Christ. A life that realizes dying is actually better because we're gonna be with Christ but realizes that while we're here, we have a job to do and it's to exalt Christ as best we can, to find joy in Christ, a joy in Christ that supersedes disappointment, that supersedes our circumstances and that supersedes life itself. So it's a month-long sermon series about the joy that comes from knowing Christ. If you don't know this joy, come every week, listen to it online, make sure you're you're sticking with us. If you do know the joy, be encouraged as we go through this, as we get to see what Paul says, writing from prison to a church he absolutely loves about how they can experience God even better and experience the joy of knowing him. See, joy is not seen in our culture all too often. We don't see a supernatural contentment in the midst of life. But if we find ways to start to exhibit it, then we can truly start to be counterculture. And that's what we're going to try to talk about this month. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, you have provided a world for us to live in that we tainted. And then you still loved us enough to send a Savior to save us from our sins. It's a powerful truth that Paul valued and esteemed highly. Help us to value and esteem it highly too. This is a foreign concept for many of us and it's not one that I claim to be an expert at either, but over these next few weeks, may we learn to truly find joy in you. Some of us have absolutely dismal circumstances. Some of us have been going through things for a long time. And some of us don't need to try very hard to think of others who are in those circumstances. But you told us to take heart for you have overcome the world. We set our eyes on you and we proudly proclaim that you are our goal, you are our aim. We seek our joy in life from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.